Welcome to SRG Offscript, the podcast where experts at Succession Resource Group unpack the latest industry trends, recommendations, and observations for independent advisors managing their practice. With no fluff and a little entertainment. In each episode, we'll discuss ways in which you can understand and leverage the value of your business, grow your business through M&A, but also through an optimized organizational structure, improve and protect your business to create a sustainable enterprise that can hopefully outlast you, and lastly, preparing for your eventual retirement and how to maximize that result. So we encourage you to listen in with whatever beverage suits your preference, and let's get to the forefront of industry trends with a fresh perspective to help you achieve your business goals. Selling your practice to another advisor is one thing, but when that advisor is a member of your family, the dynamics can be turbocharged, amped up to the nth degree, or shall we just say lively? I'm Patrice Socorro with your host, David Grau. And David, what makes family succession planning so unique and challenging? I mean, I have my own thoughts about it, but talk <laughs> to me about this. You know, honestly, it can be a tremendous opportunity when it's done right, when it's given the time that it deserves. But, you know, honestly, it, it's critical to understand it. it is 100% a gamble. I mean, there's nothing, frankly, that can divide a family faster than money, which mm -hmm. The nice thing is, I mean, you and I both know our audience, financial professionals, like this is the stuff that you all listening deal with, with your clients, but now it's time to eat some of our own cooking. So it's tricky. Uh, you know, the business plays a huge role financially for everybody involved. So if you're the founder, if you're committed to, you know, creating a family succession plan, bringing kids into the business, I mean, even nieces and nephews, then I'd say it's important to take action before you start talking about it. I mean, this is one of the areas where, and this isn't even just with family members, where a lot of founders start talking to the next generation about this, almost trying to like talk themselves into it, what this is going to look like. And then they get busy with life and running a business. And it's not as high a priority for them because they know what their retirement timeline is. The next generation doesn't always know that. And where they go from having conversations a year ago, and then two or three years ago, bump into these Gen 2, Gen 3 folks, family or not, at conferences. And you know they'll tell us how frustrated they are. They've had the conversation, but it was so long ago, they can't even remember when it was. So in general, you're really committed to succession planning with your family members. Set them up for success. Don't just rely on you know, pure nepotism. Like, Help make sure they're prepared for the opportunity. Like help them earn their spot, especially in the eyes of your team. And I don't really care if it's a team of two or a team of 25. Like make sure that they are earning their stripes, if you will. You know, that they know taking over isn't necessarily guaranteed, but that you're going to create a roadmap for them. And if they're willing to put in the time and the effort and the work and they listen, it's basically theirs to lose. And I would say also, if you end up making commitments, whether to team members or family members, stick to them. I know it sounds simple, but a lot of times people make commitments to, you know, well, Priest, I'll sell you equity in the business, or I plan to make you a partner in a couple of years. Well, we didn't really define it, and a couple of years goes by by any measure, and we haven't done anything. If you commit to it, stick to it, even if it's painful to do it, and you maybe have changed your mind, it's really, really important. So- 
bottom line, and I'll shut up and let you, you know, get to your follow-up <laughs> questions here so we can peel this onion back together. I also, I just like to draw the distinction. So business has changed a lot, even just in you know my time as a professional. Employees aren't just tools you hire, pay, and then tell them to shut up and do their job. If you want a job, keep working. Right. They're people, like they have their own families, they've got their own ambitions. So I don't in my mind, and I think a lot of our clients, honestly, just given the feedback we get, employees are almost like the work family. So I would say in general, while we're going to focus on family business dynamics today, your work family is almost as much a part of your, like your life as your actual family. So employees, the lifeblood of the business, you know, so create a plan, take action, you know, reassess, remeasure. And as things hopefully start to come together, communicate often. Air on the side of oversharing, transparency is key. And we'll get to the, the whole money issue in a moment, but <laughs> I can see that this also plays a role in the identity of the firm, the founder, whoever is going to take over. You mentioned the employees. For them, it's going to change. Someone different will right. be at the helm. And hopefully it's somebody they respect and, as you say, has earned their chops. But yeah, talk about that identity here. Really, I mean, the funny thing is for all of us as business owners, I mean, it's, it is part of our identity and it's funny when you deal with advisors, there was a survey done a couple of years ago that, you know, pulled advisors asking them if they would categorize themselves as an advisor first, business owner second, or business owner first, advisor second. And the vast majority of the answers were advisor first, business owner second. The funny thing is, I mean, you really are those two things directly in parallel. And if you aren't the business owner, then especially on the independent channel, then you really aren't the advisor. So we need to make sure that we can understand that, yeah, there, there are different roles and we need to start creating career tracks, not just as a firm, but honestly, as an industry. You know, the FPA has done some really good strides there on getting people thinking about this. There's a lot of industry coaches. We've worked on this one, but there are different roles in the organization. And it's just, it's so important, Patrice, for everybody to sort of acknowledge their own mortality. Like I know a lot of advisors love what they do. And their response to us when we talk about succession planning is, I love what I do and I'm going to die at my desk. Statistically, that's not actually what's going to end up happening. <laughs> they're just, they're not willing to commit to a time frame for their retirement because they, they do like what they do. And frankly, they got recurring income. They don't have to work that hard by the time they get to the latter parts of their career because they're not in growth mode anymore. But for me, succession planning, really, I mean, yeah, there's contracts and value, and we'll talk about those things to your point. But succession planning to me is frankly more about understanding that you're going to take your foot off the gas gradually or suddenly. When you've got clients and their family's investments, their total net worth in many cases, like it's important to make sure as you're taking your foot off the gas from a service perspective, somebody else is putting their foot on it. And that to me is what succession planning is. If we do it right, it can actually be more about growing than it is about going. That's a little bit more fun. I'm sure there are unique attributes to a family succession plan versus non-family. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, putting each individual family dynamic to the side, because that's certainly a unique element, you know, for many of the projects that our teams work on. You know, oftentimes when we're having the initial conversations with you know folks who they've got sons and daughters, nieces and nephews in the business, 
They're having the conversation with our business development team or consultants at conferences, kind of kicking the tires on the subject, but fully expecting that it's going to be easier for them because they are doing it with a family member. And I would tell you, it's probably just the opposite. Family succession planning, even when everyone's getting along, everything's kosher, we're all happy, it is more complex, not less. Now, again, if everyone plays nice, there's no unique elements that come up through the process, it can be easy, but it's easy until it's not. So it's still worth looking around all those corners, dotting our I's and crossing our T's, even if it feels like sometimes we're kind of going through the motions. Because frankly, even if things do go swimmingly, there's greater scrutiny from the IRS, like no matter what we do here. And oh, yeah, that's a lot of the negatives. Some of the positives is we get a lot more flexibility when we're dealing with you know family members. We've got tools of the trade, like self-canceling installment notes, where we can set a promissory note up where son or daughter's making payments over time. But if something ever happens to you know mom or dad, the founder, the note can just simply go away, whatever the remaining balance is, tax-free. Like that's only a tool we can use in family businesses. We've got stretch notes where it's still, you know, payment of a certain dollar amount. Like Patrice, you can buy in, you can buy in for a million dollars, but we don't have a fixed amortization schedule. Like you'd have with a car or a house or a typical buy-in. We make a payment schedule based on the profits that you receive. So it, it almost can't not work. You've got discounting we can leverage. You've got gifting versus granting, like just not tools you couldn't necessarily use with other team members, but in many cases you just wouldn't. So you get more tools of the trade, but you do have greater scrutiny from other family members, the IRS. And so it's, it's nice even when things are going really well and we want to keep it simple to still make sure we go through all the motions and that we're prepared that if a little issue comes up, we've already addressed it and it stays a little issue because it's the little things that can end up coming back to get you later. All right. You mentioned other family members. Mm. Most of the time I would expect it's, it's the founder moving on and a single individual coming up. But what if that single individual coming up is not an only child? Maybe they have brothers, sisters, maybe they have cousins who are interested or who are involved. How do you deal with that? Well, when you got other siblings involved or not involved, it's just assume it's always more complicated. (laughs) We'll break it down into its two parts. So if there's other family members who are in the business, you know, we've got to balance roles and responsibilities, compensation, again, back to the annoying money thing. And ultimately, who's the alpha? Who's going to be leading the organization when mom or dad ultimately retires? If you've got family members who aren't in the business, uh, it's still complicated, as in like we need to consider all the estate planning considerations. This, this isn't always the case, but it, it happens enough that it's worth at least keeping our eye on. So the perception by other siblings not in the business in many cases is the son or daughter in the business is basically getting the golden goose. Like mom or dad are giving you this, this printing press that generates income forever you know, how are we going to equitably divide up the estate? Like all we're getting is, you know, the investment properties. You're getting this business that will just keep growing. They don't understand or realize like the work and the risk that goes into taking over and then operating a business. Like, yes, if mom or dad are just going to give them the business, you know, that's one thing. So it's just really, really important to one, help everybody understand that it is, it's, it's work. 
there's risk involved. Nothing is guaranteed and keep everything fair and equitable. Like this goes back to dotting I's and crossing T's. Even if we don't think we necessarily need to like sell at fair market value or something close to it, have a valuation done, even if we don't think we necessarily need it because these things just help keep everything even keel through the process. And the problem is some families are really good about talking about these things and talking about money, but not everybody in the family necessarily is. And some families are just terrible at it. Like, so a lot of times you don't even as the mom or the dad, like you don't even fully understand where maybe some of the resentment is coming from, but it could be stemming from things like this. So if you have other siblings in or around the business or not, it's just really critical to make sure we give this subject the time and attention that it deserves and understand even though their perspective may not be rational, it is still their perspective. Is there anything different about valuing a practice when it's a, a family involved, a family succession? Yeah, valuation is another one of those kind of tricky ones that you know most of our clients, they want to get value out of the business, don't get me wrong, but they're not necessarily with family succession planning trying to squeeze every nickel out of the thing. You know, they don't need their son or daughter to necessarily pay full fair market value. But at the same time, their business is usually one of their largest, if not their largest personal asset, like on their balance yeah. sheet. So it's important to make sure we get it out. And again, we've got outside parties to consider. So we've got the IRS, we've got other family members. So even if we're going to end up selling below fair market value and everybody fully acknowledges it, it's still really important to start by having the business valued. And I mean, yes, we do valuations. You're asking a barber if you need a haircut. But I would give you that answer, honestly, as a listener, even if you told me, okay, we're going to go work with you know somebody else, same answer, get the business valued. You know, we can leverage various discounts to get to a number that works for everybody in the spreadsheets. But without the objective starting place, like even if you're trying to give your son or daughter a really sweetheart deal, we don't actually know how good or bad of a deal it is if we don't have that objective starting place. So I've seen people avoid it ultimately. And when you avoid the subject, sometimes you're fine, but you can pretty much expect it. It's going to come up. Your CPA is going to want a third party opinion of value that they can stick in their file and rely on in case you get audited. If you do external financing, they're likely going to want a copy of evaluation. If you have other siblings, it may come up in the estate planning conversation. Right, right. So it's just, it's worth usually attacking that subject proactively and use it as a tool in the process. Don't feel bound by it, but at least acknowledge it. I really don't see how you could do this without evaluation. <laughs> I mean, it sounds obvious when you say it, but I would also tell you, you know, we're pretty prolific in publishing our data on average multiples. There's other folks who put that stuff out there. So it's like knowing the average price per square foot of real estate in your area. It's probably not too far off. But again, when it comes to estate planning, the IRS, other family members going and getting a loan to buy in, like knowing the average price per square foot isn't going to be enough. And it's the same thing here. You you might know average multiples. And you might be fine selling the business for a million when you know it's probably worth two. But again, everybody else needs that $2 million figure to start with. And then we can really solidify that, yes, you are giving them an amazing deal. 
But when you start at, let's say a million dollars for the business and you know, it's really worth, you know, 2 million or more, that doesn't mean the son or daughter, the next generation on your team, that they know that. I mean, they might think it's worth more than a million, but they just, they may not have the same perspective on how generous you really are being. So it's just not that expensive. I mean, I get it for some businesses where they're really unique. I mean, kind of like ours, Succession Resource Group. There's not a lot of firms who do what we do. So valuing it would be hard. And by hard, I mean, expensive. Mm-hmm. For an advisor, I mean, for a couple thousand dollars, they can solve this problem. And so when people are dealing with litigation later, they look back on these things like, well, shoot, yeah, $6,000 or $3,000, whatever the price was for the valuation. It seemed like a lot of the time, but man, for the peace of mind you will have right. years later, so much. It's just, it's so worth it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on then. And let's talk about how a succession plan is actually structured when a family is involved. So I think it goes without saying, but anytime you say that it's worth just saying. So these things take time. I mean, they are very much their process, not an event. They can be an event if we don't plan for it, but we are talking to an industry full of professional planners. So we've got the financial aspects to consider for sure. You're making your, sure your successors can afford it. Son, daughter, key employees, doesn't matter. Like there's the financial components. Uh, but then we've got the more practical components of transitioning the actual business, like the role transition. And that takes even more time. So I would say in general, you know, the form of plans have changed a lot over the years. You know, historically, our job was surprisingly simple in hindsight. Didn't feel like it at the time. But by comparison, it was where everything was seller financed. Like there there was no bank financing. There was no broker dealer or custodial financing. It was the seller getting paid out of cash flow or bust. So the owner that sell a small portion of the practice, successor would use the portion of the profits they get from having just bought in to service the note, to pay it off. You know, kind of what CPAs and law firms have been doing for decades. But it was never a very attractive solution to founders. You know, when you really, when you sort of boil it down, back up and squint your eyes, basically the founder is giving the successor the money, i.e. the profits that they had the day before. Now you've bought in and now you get your share of the profits. You receive those profits as the successor, family member or not, you pay taxes on those profits. And then you turn around and take the post-tax dollars and give them back to me. And guess what I do? More taxes. More taxes. I pay taxes. So basically when we're done here... I literally, not even figuratively, I literally have my own money back, just less of it. So it wasn't like the most compelling value proposition. And I can see why for the longest time, you only engaged in proactive succession planning if you needed to, like for retention, motivation. And I would say that was an important component. And it's more important now than ever before, like making partner, you know, the capital P is... It's an important step on the career path for growing firms. And so, you know, we all did it and it still gets used occasionally. So today, you know, we've got a handful of different strategies because as the industry has evolved and financing has become available, all of a sudden we've got more choices, especially if we get proactive with it. I'd say the most common of probably the three that we use a lot would be a leverage buyout. And just to you know keep it simple for this format here. Basically, we have staged purchases that are big enough purchases as a like percentage and dollar mm-hmm. value 
that these external banks or broker dealers, custodians, they can actually finance them. So, you know, usually we're doing it in like three stages. You know, the first one or two will get Gen 2, the family member up to maybe 49%, i.e. not controlling quite yet. Right. And then eventually the other 51% will happen at a final buyout when the owner's ready to retire. You know, nice part here is they can take some bites of the apple, gradually get some of that paid off over time while the founder is still here to help mentor and train and guide. And for the founder, it's it's still kind of nice because even if they're not trying to get full value out, they can still gradually deleverage. They can sell 24%, take that cash off the table. Gen 2 son, daughter has 10 years to pay a bank back. We sell them another 24, 25% in a couple of years, take more chips off the table. We just gradually deleverage. And then eventually we can sell the controlling stake or at least you know give them the controlling interest. That is a strategy we could not use before because there was no bank financing. And then when there was bank financing, the little bit that was available, the payback period was, it, it didn't help things. Let's put it that way. Whereas today we've got 10 years on almost all bank financing. Like that helps. The other strategy you know, is probably our, our shared growth model. We do that one a lot. We actually, I think we won an award for it in 2020 or 21 from Think Advisor. And basically it is, it's a phantom equity strategy. It's committed to paper and spreadsheets and contracts, but it is phantom equity or people use the term synthetic equity. You know, if we're talking just about an S corp, we use the term phantom equity because it's a little bit more inclusive, but bottom line is it is a strategy where we can do evaluation today, figure out what the value is. And that is a hundred percent attributable to the founder, but then any appreciation beyond that value, we can share as a percentage might be 10%, might be 50%. We'll help calibrate that. But the next gen can earn a stake in the appreciation in the value mm -hmm. of the organization. It's phantom equity. So they don't get profits. They don't have to buy in. This is a compensation and retention tool. So they, they accrue this phantom equity balance. And then someday when you're ready to retire, that is applied as a discount. They buy in for some lesser amount from their accrued equity. And it keeps things really simple. You know, I don't have to share decision-making until I'm ready. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still important to do those things, but I don't have to. I don't have to share my financials until I'm ready. So it just gives everyone a lot of flexibility. And on the off chance that you know we're five or six years into this thing and we just don't love working together as much as we thought we were going to. Well, if the son or daughter leaves the business and goes and does something else amicably, hopefully, it's a phantom equity plan. So it just simply goes up in smoke. There's no buyback requirements. It just keeps things a little bit simpler. And the last one is just what we talked about earlier. It's the profit recycling where they buy in and they use the profits to pay it back. It doesn't get used nearly as much industry-wide, but in family succession planning, where there's just a higher level of trust, more desire for flexibility. There, we actually still use it quite a bit. You mentioned a 10-year payout with these banks. That's no small amount of time. When do you just have to start planning this? Because if you're, if say you want to really leave about 60, 10 years, you've, that's 50. You've got to set this all up when you're in your 40s. And therein lies the challenge is you need to be doing this while you're still working on growing the business. And that is just so far from what most of us owners are doing. Right. Yeah. But again, going back to our audience here, professional planners, 
we just, we have to fully acknowledge, like we should be starting with the end in mind. Build the business with the expectation someday you will not be here. Because as it turns out, you won't be. Someday you won't be. Like it's going to happen. So I'd say really time frame, like an actual specific answer is probably seven to 10 years. Like from a cold start, having not had the conversation at all to then you exiting stage left seven to 10 years, it's doable. Can we do it in less time than that? Yes, but if you think of it kind of like, you know, an airplane or a jet, like the bigger your plane gets, the longer the runway is going to need to be, you know, can you land a 747 on a really small municipal airport strip? You can, it doesn't mean you should. (laughs) It's going to be a bumpy landing for everybody. Succession planning is the same way. If it's just one owner, one successor, you could do it probably in less than seven to 10 years, but not by much. Again, going back to the financial components, making sure the firm can still continue to grow and invest in that growth. We don't want Gen 2, son or daughter or not, making less as a result of buying in. So we just have to start doing a lot of things with one cash flow. So that that's where succession plans, unfortunately, end up starting to kind of fall apart is they don't give it the time that it deserves. They start too late and Oftentimes it's just a perception, mm-hmm. but perception is reality in many cases where Gen 2, the son or daughter, almost doesn't feel like they could afford to take it over, like it's outgrown their ability to buy. It's just gotten too complex. And in reality, it probably hasn't. But again, that doesn't really matter if that's the perception. So the last analogy, I promise. But for me, <laughs> operating a business, thinking about succession planning, that role transition, it's a lot like juggling to me. Like when you start your business, all of us, frankly, as founders, you've got one ball to juggle, get clients. It's not hard and we'll drop it occasionally, but you know, you get pretty good at juggling that one ball until you get to a point where you can't do it by yourself. Like you can't be prospecting and servicing and rebalancing and answering the phones and checking the mail. Like, so you, you hire somebody, they take those administrative tasks off your plate. You refocus. Now you've got two balls. Well, shoot. Fast forward 20 years in the business, you got like 20 balls you juggled throughout the year without even really knowing it. So when you then start thinking about succession planning and trying to get Gen 2, especially family members, ready and wanting them to succeed, like how do we hand over 20 balls to somebody who doesn't know how to juggle yet? Like it doesn't sound like a very good idea. So the key then is to do it one ball at a time. You know, can they juggle one ball just like you did? Well, yeah, anybody can juggle one ball. You throw it in the air and you catch it. Like, give them one ball and then give them another ball. Can they juggle two? Yeah, they're going to drop it occasionally. But next thing you know, they got eight or nine balls and you don't have to juggle them all anymore. Then it starts to kind of be fun and you start throwing them some extra balls and you keep the hard ones that are going to take more time. But bottom line is it just, it does take time. Can you throw all 20 balls at them? Sure. Do some people occasionally catch them and juggle them all? Yeah, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen. But more often than not, you know, they'll catch 10, they'll drop 10, and they'll slowly pick the other 10 back up. Like in a business, that's messy. So just give yourself time. Like start with creating a career path. Like again, even if you only got five or six people in the firm in total, figure out what the firm looks like when you're ready to retire. If that's 10 years from now, you're probably going to double in size, even if you're not really trying. Like just the way that our industry is wired between appreciation of the assets, a little bit of organic growth, 
God forbid you go and buy a practice. So figure out as your firm grows and it doubles in size, what are the roles? Who do you need on the team? And then start thinking about, you know, you may not be ready to commit to like your retirement date yet. I get that. But break it down into, you know, the two components. When do you want to be able to cut back and slow down? Like not retire, but go from, you know, 60 hours to 40 or 40 to 20, however you define full-time to part-time. When would that date be? If you can't answer it, talk to your spouse. They can usually help answer it. And then when do you want to be able to retire? Not have to retire, but be able to. If we can start there, it's like working on a financial plan with clients. We can start to work our way backwards and figure out what we need to do and when. So I think it's you start developing a plan. Again, we're talking to an audience full of professional planners. So I know this doesn't fall on deaf ears, but from an industry perspective, we've been the shoemaker's kids with no shoes. So, you know, I would say at my closing comment on this one, when we're helping clients, we're basically just trying to help them look around all these corners before they get there. So we're talking about things like valuing the business now versus the future, tax considerations, financing, role transition, equity grants, minority discounts. Is the equity structure you know, set up or does that need to be retooled? Like these things all take time. So if we can start the process, we can get the contracts put together. It, it's a lot, I fully acknowledge. But with time, like that seven to 10 year time frame, or even five to 10, really, it's all very manageable. Just know that even when we're done doing all of this, like we've delivered the succession plan to the client, to you as a listener, it's still a process. Things change. They don't always follow our spreadsheets, unfortunately, as amazing as they are. So just understanding the planning work you know, that we do, it's a guide to help you along the way. One last question for me, David. In your experience, how well does Gen 2 do once they take over? Kind of funny because it, it's almost like a cheat code and it seems unfair for the founder to have put in all the blood and sweat and tears, the myriad of disciplines that they have to learn and master to get the business to where it is today. And, and I would say... Gen 2, Gen 3 usually does very well. It's Gen 1, the founder, that struggles because they're expecting, and fairly so, I can understand why, but they're expecting Gen 2 and Gen 3 to be just like them. Ah, yes. There's a great book, and it's not specifically on succession planning, but it kind of is. It's called What Got You There Won't Get You Here, or something to that effect. I read it years ago. And it's that concept, basically, like, do we need the same skills you had as the founder when you had no clients and got it to where it is today to get it from where it is today to where we want it to be 20 years from now? No, not a chance. We need more specialization, not a generalist. So understand that, again, you, your skills, not to take anything away from that, but that may not be the same thing we need to maintain the business and grow it going forward. So just understand that Gen 2, Gen 3, they may not be great business development or salespeople. They may not even like that part of the business, but they can still do well with it in spite of not having the exact same skill set that you have. But you know, again, the thing that kills me, frankly here, Patrice, is the brain drain in our industry due to the lack of succession planning. Like, Does Gen 2, Gen 3 do well with the business in succession planning? Yes. Do they do better when you have, you know, seven to 10 years or longer to unpack everything that's your, in your head as the founder yeah. and download it to them? Yes, yeah, they most certainly do. 
because there's so much you learn over a 20 or 30 year career. And it kills me when I see people decide to sell the business and retire in like a 12 to 24 month period. Financially, oh we can check the box. We can make it work. But you just think how much knowledge about the clients, the industry that they take with them. I mean, that sucks from an industry perspective. <laughs> it does. David, this is all fantastic. And I know there are advisors, the most great advisors out there with questions. So how can they reach you? Always check our website, successionresource.com. There's the chat window there. Our contact information is there. And then the other one's probably LinkedIn. I mean, social media in general, we're pretty prolific in trying to get the content out there. We're very active. You can always message us. So use the website, use social media. Our contact information is there. Don't hesitate to pick up the phone. We're always happy to have these conversations. We acknowledge how personal and intimate some of these conversations you know, need to be. When it comes to succession planning, family business stuff, I mean, there's a lot of unique dynamics. So get proactive, pick the phone up, talk to us before you think you need to, and you'll probably end up enjoying the process a little bit more. <laughs> All right. Advisors, listeners, follow this podcast, share with others, including those in your family. And if you have questions, tap into David's nearly 20 years of experience, contact him. And thanks for being with us. And that concludes another episode of SRG Offscript. We hope you found this episode both interesting and valuable. We encourage you to check out our website at successionresource.com or, of course, connect with us on social for the latest happenings at SRG. If you just can't get enough of SRG Offscript, we invite you to join our monthly Q&A webinar, SRG Offscript Live, where we address your questions sparked by the latest podcast topic. Finally, if you enjoyed today's episode as much as we did recording it, please leave us a review and tell your industry friends about us. Your support helps us continue to bring you the best content possible. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Succession Resource Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of an expert with any questions you may have. As always, we at SRG stand ready to help when you're ready.